This month on Focus Black Oklahoma. Learn about the banning of books by black authors in Oklahoma school districts and its long-term impact on education. Examine the nationwide push to increase the engagement of black women in politics. Discuss increasing anti-LGBTQIA rhetoric and hate crimes across the country. Understand the ongoing legal battles over the Supreme Court's McGirt decision on tribal sovereignty. Hear about how recent surveys show a spike in mental health struggles in high school students. And tag along on a journalist's experience at a nudist colony. All of this and more on Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma is sponsored by Phillips Seminary, welcoming nonviolence trainer Kazu Haga in a concert by the many as part of a Transforming Justice Conference. Online at wherefaithleads.com slash remindrenew. This is Focus Black Oklahoma. I'm Jacob Littlebear. And I'm Kuma Roberts. Oklahoma is among the Republican-led states that have banned over 1,000 books since fall 2021, with the bans disproportionately affecting works with black characters or addressing issues of race. Focus Black Oklahoma's Anthony Cherry spoke with educators about the impact of restricting literature in the classroom. Books are an essential vehicle for socializing children and teaching them the values and concepts that communities deem important. Well-written stories can help to shape identities, our relevance to groups, and to society. They help us to craft our decision-making processes, and in some cases, the right books can affirm our sense of purpose or self-worth. So what happens when books that reflect certain experiences, values, perspectives, attitudes, and languages are banned from public consumption. This is a fundamental question to be addressed when one notices the disproportionate number of banned books in Oklahoma written by Black authors. In 2022, the New York City-based nonprofit entity, PEN America, which tracks restrictions on books in school libraries and classrooms, found 42 books, including eight by Black authors that have been banned in at least one Oklahoma school district. The narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass and All American Boys by Jason Reynolds fall into Oklahoma's Black banned book category. But it is even more glaring to notice the disproportionate number of Black women authors on the challenged or banned book lists across Oklahoma. Books such as I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, For Black Girls Like Me by Merima J. Lockington, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. These books face much public scrutiny. House Bill 1775, which places legal restrictions on what may be taught in Oklahoma classrooms regarding race as well as sex, has further fueled the literary controversy in the state. Books often reflect the social climates in which they were written. Dr. Shane Gilley expands on just this point. He is an educator, archivist, and librarian who is currently serving at Holland Hall Episcopal School in Tulsa as the high school librarian. He also explores the confusing process of challenging versus banning books. So the process of banning books is a lot different than the process of challenging books, it feels like. Uh, Every library I've worked at, you know, departments I've worked at, there's always a formal challenge process that that, that parents or faculty members or whomever have to go through. Uh, The American Library Association, the ALA, my or professional organization, they have recommendations for the sorts of uh, 
things that a librarian should do in that process, right? So that's how to challenge a book if maybe you have a problem with it. Banning books, that's, that's chaos. That's people showing up at, at school board meetings and yelling and, and mad and angry. And, uh, and then politicians freaking out about angry people and then throwing everything away without any kind of reasoned discussion. What kind of books are on the banned book list in Oklahoma? There's no one list, but it feels like the districts are, you know, school districts throughout the state are getting more and more consistently hit. Um, last year was a record year for challenges to books. Um, and the challenge and the ban, and it, there's a lot of verbiage, right? There's no like good way to say something's challenged and we're pulling it and we're reassessing it and then we put it back. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very convoluted process in a lot of ways, but I do know a lot of, not a lot, let me back up, a few select people seem to be targeting uh, schools very specifically uh, regarding certain titles. Uh, titles that deal with uh, sexuality, gender, race, uh, you know, the House Bill 70, 1775 has been a biggie and, and uh, really brought a lot of attention to schools and, and the teaching of, of history and, and race. Why do people or groups challenge particular books? Well, for example, in Bristow, parents brought a list of, I think, 47, 49 books to a school board. Nine of those weren't even on the library shelves. So that right there, I think, just reveals sort of the weakness of this argument, right? And then out of the remaining, I think eight were either reassigned to a different grade, like maybe they were too, a little bit too more mature for a middle school, um, and were given to maybe high school or maybe AP high school English, something like that. And then I think there were, were a handful that did not make it back onto the shelves. Um, but it felt like it was at least looked at and not just sort of wholesale, okay, we're done. We're getting rid of all these. And some of them that made it back onto the list were the, they were the repeat offenders on every list. You know, the hate you give is always one on there. The bluest eye is always on there. Um, some of them that were on there were strange, like the outsiders. That was on the middle school list they were trying to ban. Man, books are timeless, you know? Books have knowledge that transcend culture. They transcend class. They transcend time, right? Some of the books that were on the Bristow list that we just talked about, Brave New World, right? Um, 1984. Uh, you know, these books that we look at as touchstones in uh, discussing authoritarianism uh, and revealing the nature of uh, what living in authoritarian rule looks like. I mean, these, these are, you know, 60, 70, 80 year old books. Um, and so if you can get to the books, you get to other points of view. You get those out of the library, you get one point of view, then you've, you've succeeded in sort of this thought police activity and everybody thinks like you which i said goes back to the fear that other people are going to have other ideas maybe they're they're you know not even their kids because like i say it's not always parents but but the somebody's going to have an idea that doesn't line up with what theirs is um, and that's what books do books changes you know books books help us expand that's that's why they're so powerful editor williams mcknight is an international educator poet and writer currently residing in Tulsa. She has taught in the United States for over 23 years. When I started teaching, I always saw thing from, things from the sort of social perspective or historical perspective as well as the literary. So I don't want students just being able to memorize the main idea is this, three themes are that, the symbols are this, like that's all nice. But the reason why we do that is because we want students to have a real 
connection and experience with the text they read to be critical thinkers of what is before them. It doesn't mean they agree with it, but it means that they are able to engage it in a deep way. Um, and that's kind of what masterful reading and masterful thinking and writing critically is all about. Williams McKnight reflects on her experiences as a young reader. So one of the, I brought some books here. One of the books I brought was Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which is one of the books I remember from, I don't know when I read it. Was it middle school? Was it early high school? Sometime or other high school. I did not know this was a banned book or would be a banned book, but I can tell you that by reading her story, and it's a memoir, but so well written, so finely written, um, and so honest and candid, that I had an experience of what reading and literature and other people's stories can be about and have been about. No one told me this would ever be banned. I never felt um, I shouldn't have read something that I read in it. You know what I mean? And I think, I can't remember if I read it because it was assigned to me or because I just read it, but I read so many of the other books that she wrote um, having been introduced to her work, right? So reading that opened me up to be a reader. So I won't give this whole story away to those who don't know, but something very traumatic happened to her when she was a, a young girl and she stopped talking. And so people were trying to lure her out because they could see how bright she was and that kind of thing. And so um, there was a woman that she really admired who said to her, your grandmother says you read a lot every chance you get. That's good, but not good enough. Words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with the shades of deeper meaning. So I thought that idea of um, giving voice to something really speaks on a meta level of what banning books disallows us to do. As an educator, Williams McKnight is more pragmatic about what she reads and the reading assignments she gives to her students. What is troubling is that to not even give an educator who is trained in dealing with students an opportunity to offer to them this world that has been given, you know, that there's enough literary value around it or the teacher has vetted it, that the teacher feels like they could handle this maturely and see that students can connect with it, to like not even allow them that chance you know, is really, like, it, that's deep. She goes on to explain how this affects Oklahoma educators in general. Another alarming part of this is not just what gets taught in schools, but what is banned from libraries. And libraries, public libraries, are our civic space. They belong to all of us. It is a part of our democracy, the infrastructure of our democracy and the freedom of ideas. So now when you have... I think it's alarming when without any kind of civic discourse around a given book, there's a banning of it. Now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, all books are, are not problematic, you know. I'm trying to say you're taking away the opportunity to even have civil discourse about why, because it's not even going to be on the table at all. Williams McKnight reflects on her experience teaching lessons connected to the book The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. So I think that a lot of these authors, women, studiers of humans, having been on sort of the often disempowered end of things, they are writing from that perspective um, and giving it voice. Um, one of the questions that is in Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, that is just a brilliant question. She had one of the characters is asking the story is about um, a girl who witnesses her friend get killed by cops and he was unarmed. She was there in the car with him. It's very similar to what has happened in our own society. Right. Art imitates life. Life imitates art. And so one of the character asks, uh, do you think that the cops want the boy who got shot to have justice. She was being interviewed by the cops and her innocent question was, do you think these cops want this character have, to have justice? And the author does not treat this in a heavy handed way, right, in my opinion. She sets up 
this moment where this character is really trying to figure out, do I tell my truth in this situation? What will happen? Will justice come <laughs> for an innocent who was shot by a cop? People are living this life every day, right? So what, why shut that story down? This is their, them telling their truth as they tell it with their language, where they're from, you know, in a very well-developed way. Williams McKnight's main concern revolves around the protection of American democratic ideals. And some of the voices we may not agree with. We don't want to hear. There are certain voices and certain attitudes and certain positions I'm going to have a problem with, right? But part of the premise, I think, of our democratic ideal um, is that under, under most conditions, we protect the voice of the people we honor that there is a diversity of them. In the best of all possible worlds, we need all these different voices to come up with higher ideals or ideas, or to at least temper extremes. And we want those voices to help us see what is true, right? They're the things that are true for people as they live in our society. So to shut that story down that representation of a people, a person, a situation down, is to erase them. Similarly, um, when people call out the system for what it is, I think that's going to cause discomfort because it's no longer Disney and pushback. And why do why why is my child reading this? Why is my child feeling bad about? Why is my child confused? Why is you know? And I think that's you know, and I'm not vilifying people who, I think when they are asking books to be banned, there's a protectiveness that they are feeling. They want to protect their child from something that they think is against their morals or their whatever. I am not sure if people who ban these things have thoroughly read these books and had conversations with them, about them with other people. I don't know, but but usually these stories kind of um, argue for themselves if you give them the full, deep read. Without well-written stories from diverse perspectives, children who will become future leaders, thought shapers, and creators of new technology, art, etc., have an impediment to their development of critical reasoning, opportunities to develop entrepreneurial thought, empathy, and problem-solving from multiple perspectives may be sacrificed when we practice widespread censorship across Oklahoma. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Anthony Cherry in Tulsa. With Kamala Harris holding the office of Vice President of the United States, Black women are arguably more visible in American politics than ever. Don Carter reports on a national organization dedicated to increasing engagement and representation of Black women in the political process. For more reporting on the topics discussed in this story, you can listen to our episode released in January 2021, wherever you get your podcasts. When Black women be Black womening, we set the stage. We are past, present, and future. When Black women be Black womening, we not only create change, we shift the narrative. 500. That is the number of Black women candidates who ran for office at the federal, state, and local levels in the most recent midterm election. This means over 500 Black women carrying their message, although different from the socially acceptable mainstream message, it is their message. Over 500 shared experiences, ideas, and viewpoints of life through the eyes of the Black woman. Talk about shifting the narrative. Let's talk about it. My name is Lakila Demon. I currently serve as the National Director for Higher Heights. Um, Higher Heights is the only national organization providing Black women with a political home, building political power and leadership of Black women from the voting booth to to elective office, and creating the environment for Black women to to run, win, and lead. Higher Heights was founded by Black women for Black women's political growth and equity, and we have a winning plan for Black women um, for building collective political power and expanding Black women's elected leadership. 
Higher Heights, founded in 2011, is a Brooklyn-based 501c4 organization that harnesses the Black woman's ability as policy leaders and highlights their voting power. Stimmons, the national director for Higher Heights, has always been an advocate of voting rights, started her career as a tax attorney. And even though she loved the work, something was pulling her on the inside telling her there was more for her to contribute. Higher Heights was and is more her. This is where she gets to encourage the trust of Black women and their ability to build collective political power. Collective political power. That is basically Black women and our allies coming together and investing in the power, in the training, in the knowledge base, in truly investing in what equity representation looks like, in leadership reflective of what this country looks like. But most importantly, investing in what it truly means to stand with and trust black women. We've been on the forefront of every movement that you can think of. According to Higher Heights PAC, Black women are increasingly running and winning. 2020 presented the first Black woman vice president. And as of today, 26 Black women are serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. Though only two Black women have ever served in the U.S. Senate, Black women are currently 4.3% of all state legislators, compared to 2.3% in 1999. Currently, Black women serve as mayor in seven of the nation's 100 most populous U.S. cities, compared to just two in 2014. Here's Ilhan Omar, U.S. Representative for Minnesota's 5th Congressional District, speaking about what happens when we began leaning into our power. I lean into my power by not waiting for an invitation or asking permission. Um, I get really annoyed when people talk about empowerment because we are already internally empowered. We just need people to step out of the way so that we can step into our power. We know that when women lead, um, we get things done. And it is important that we don't only see women as being part of the resistance, but we see them as as part of restoring and reshaping um, our country. Our country has been moving away from its ideals of equality and black women and all women uh, are pushing our country to actually realize its ideals. Black women sitting at decision-making tables discussing the issues black women face, such as reproductive justice, Abortion is just one of many health factors for black women. Highlighting abortion as the prominent issue takes away glaring facts of black maternal mortality rates. For example, the chance of a black woman dying in the U.S. due to pregnancy or childbirth complications is two to three times more than a white woman. And this is controlled for income. That is, even black women with access to the best health care the U.S. has to offer are two to three times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts, regardless of their level of access to quality health care. Fibroids, also a reproductive health issue, are non-cancerous tumor growths in the uterus that affect black women two to three times more than their counterparts. Complications from fibroids lead to infertility, anemia, and one of the most common reasons for hysterectomy. In March 2020, then-Senator Kamala Harris and Senator Yvette Clark introduced the Uterine Fibroid Research and Education Act, proposed to earmark $30 million annually from 2021 through 2025 
to the National Institutes of Health to expand uterine fibroid research. Although the bill did not pass, it has the potential to be reintroduced again. This is how you change and you get policy in place and laws in place on a local level, right? I'm not even talking about statewide or federal. I'm talking about locally. These are, this is how you empower women and you get them to understand that their voices is their vote and their power and it matters and they can make a change. And once they see that change on a local level, it could be that woman that then runs for office. Look at Lucy McBeth. Lost her son to gun violence and is now a sitting member of, U, of the U.S. Congress. You talking about turning pain into purpose, and now a policymaker. When Black women with lived experiences are at the decision-making tables, there truly can be justice for all. For more information on Higher Heights, visit higherheightsforamerica.org, or you can connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Higher Heights for America. For Focus... Black Oklahoma, I'm Don Carter in Okmulgee. Anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric along with the Molotov cocktail were thrown into a Tulsa donut shop because it was hosting a drag queen event. This event and others like it indicates performers and even their allies have reasons for fear and concern. Nick Alexandrov has details on the growing instances of anti-LGBTQ hate crimes. It happens, you know, late at night, early morning. So everyone was sleeping. I got a couple phone calls. Surveillance video from the donut hole catches a person in dark clothing and a red hat walking up to the business around 2.30 this morning. Halloween morning, three days before Daniel Gulick's planned art installation at Tulsa's donut hole. The event, a mock donut shop hosted by drag queens, was called off. Investigators say the person first puts a letter with anti-LBGTQ rhetoric on the door of a neighboring business, then uses a bat to smash through the glass door. Once it's broken, you can see the person light a Molotov cocktail, throw it inside, and take off. It was a scary thing. And people always say, you know, don't let them win, don't let them do any of that, you know, but it's like, it's easy to say that from the outside. But when, when it's yours and when the people that you love are involved in it, um, it's real. When you're involved in it, it's real and it's scary. Assailants hit the donut hole twice in October. The first attack on the night of the 15th shattered the shop's glass window and door. Earlier that night, Gulick's first drag donut experience drew over 500 people. There was a line. You know, they started lining up about an hour and a half before we opened the doors, and the line just went down Brookside, down Peoria. I met Gulick in his Route 66 studio near downtown Tulsa in December. Thinking back to early fall, he recalled... People bring in their children, people bring in everybody in their family, um, husbands, wives. There was a huge LGBTQ community that came, all in support. For... The Queen's... It was their night to shine, and they did just that. It's not clear when they'll perform again. These people that I've been working with are scared, you know, and they have every right to be. Just turn on the news. It's a holiday-themed drag queen storytelling event in Columbus, Ohio. It was canceled Saturday following intimidation efforts from right-wing groups. It's one of a number of drag story hours disrupted by far-right protesters this year, including in Nevada, Oregon, and California. Breaking news right now on Denver 7, a Saturday night out turned tragic in Colorado Springs. At least five people are now dead, 18 people are now hurt after a shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub. We've definitely regressed and it's really scary. Boston, spell that with two S's, hosts drag events in Tulsa. We talked after a mid-December show. The venue's owner, fearing the violence publicity could bring, asked me not to name their space on the air. It's been hard. Um, it's been hard to um, feel safe 
in our own spaces. Eroding security, control slipping away, this feeling runs against Boston's life and drag. I was a music theater kid my whole life growing up. I did it very seriously. I did it very professionally. And um, I was like, if I was at music theater school, I was going to do the New York showcase for my school and everything. It was like a whole 17-year plan that I had already started when I was a kid. And um, I just got tired of playing the same boy roles all the time. And I had no... Uh, creative freedom and then when I found drag and I figured out that you literally do everything from start to finish head to toe it's all you then I was like okay I can still do my performance I can still you know be on stage it's really helped me discover my gender and explore um, explore my life through that lens A three-hour drive to the southwest in Lawton, you can catch drag events at VFW Post 5263. Ariel Monroe is one of the hosts. Her story mirrors Boston's in some respects. I was in drama club in high school and I joined the military right after and it's a very strict and stringent thing. Not a lot of creativity or, or areas to be creative. So when I finally got out, I was helping one of my friends with a pageant and they kind of opened up my eyes to, to what drag was. I was like, oh, I want to do that. That looks nice. Ariel shares MC duties with Tiana Winters. I was a performer beforehand, like ballet, musical theater, all of it, the whole nine yards. I was also in the military for five years. But after the, um, the military, I found, that I, I found a group here that did the whole drag thing. VFW regulars, at first, bristled at that group's arrival. When we first started here, every single show I would come here and somebody would say something negative to me at the door. Every single show. It would always happen. And I, I had to tell them one day, like, I'm a veteran too. Like, I served that, that five years for a reason for me to be able to do this at a place like this. This is a space for me. This is a space for Ariel Monroe. It's a space they intend to preserve as anti-drag rhetoric ratchets up. War Room Battleground. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Hang on one second. Let me kind of get a Robbie. Can I bring in Robbie Starbuck? This is no longer just, hey, this is a drag issue. This is all over the U.S. This is a fight for the soul of humanity. And the right thing here is very clear. This should not be allowed. I, I feel like Titi and I very much have, have the standpoint of f*** around and find out. And I don't know if that's our military background. but And it might be. <laughs> but it's one of those things like, why should we have to dim our light just because other people don't agree with it? Molly Ross contributed to this story. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Nick Alexandrov in Lawton. The U.S. Supreme Court's landmark McGirt versus Oklahoma decision in 2020 was a big win for tribal sovereignty that gave tribal nations jurisdiction over many crimes committed in their territory and by their citizens. But working out the state of Oklahoma's role in such matters has proven extremely contentious. State Impact Oklahoma's Logan Layden spoke with KOSU Indigenous Affairs reporter Allison Herrera about one case that highlights the complications involved. Allison, this case on its face is about illegal hunting in Oklahoma. Can you tell us more about it? Last year, last January, in January 2022, Jimmy Ward, who is an Osage citizen, spotted what he thought was a white-tailed deer um, on a rural road in Carter County. He pulled out his rifle to shoot it, but then learned that it was actually a decoy. This is a sting set up by Oklahoma Fish and Wildlife to catch off-season hunters. It's a pr pretty standard operation. But what happened after that was uh, very unusual. So at first, he's taken it and charged with several crimes. And then 
because he is a citizen of the Osage Nation. He was hunting um, within the Chickasaw Nation Reservation in Carter County. He moves to have these charges dismissed. He says to the court, you know, you, state of Oklahoma, don't have jurisdiction over me uh, in these crimes because I am an Osage citizen. I, I was caught c- committing these illegal acts uh, on the Chickasaw Nation Reservation and invokes McGirt and says, you know, I'm filing a motion to dismiss. And so he does, the court agrees, and, and then he's actually charged in Chickasaw Nation Court. Well, the initial criminal charges against Mr. Ward were dismissed due to lack of jurisdiction. Tell us why this matters and tell us what happened next. So they were dismissed for lack of jurisdiction because of McGirt, uh, because, you know, under the McGirt ruling, crimes committed by Native people within reservation boundaries can be charged in federal court or in tribal court. So they get dismissed. But then the state seizes his gun and all of his other equipment that was used in the taking of this illegal deer. And he says, wait a minute, you don't have the right to take my stuff. They say, no, you know, you don't have jurisdiction in this matter. This is a civil matter. And we, the state of Oklahoma, have the right to try you, um, Mr. Ward, even though these crimes were committed within um, Chickasaw Nation's uh, reservation. Well, then in walks Stitt's general counsel at one of these hearings, um, Trevor Pemberton. Um, and so Pemberton uses this technique called civil asset forfeiture. And it's kind of a tool that police use designed to go after the instrument in the in the crime. And in this case, it's Ward's rifle and his other equipment. Um, and they say that that they have the jurisdiction to do that, that they have the, the power to prosecute civil crimes, even if they don't have the power to prosecute um, and bring charges in criminal matters under McGirt. How often is it that the governor's office gets involved in cases like this? Well, I talked to a couple of people about this case and you know, I talked to um, William Norman. He is a lawyer with Hobbs and Strauss here in Oklahoma, and they also have an office in Washington, D.C. And here's what he said. It's very unusual to see this type of involvement in a, a governor with respect to their own appointed counsel. And yet, at the same time, I would say it's probably predictable for this governor from in terms of the subject matter and his um, sort of continuing battle against the tribes on every front. Uh, I, I think it's unfortunate. And I should note that the other unusual part of this case is that the state objected to Chickasaw Nation filing an amicus brief. You know, they obviously have an interest in this case because it happened within their reservation. But then the governor's office said, no, you don't have the right. You um, uh, An amicus brief, you, you should never be able to file an amicus brief. Only if you want to be part of this case, then you need to relinquish, you know, you need to be subject yourself to this court. Basically, release your sovereign rights or give up your sovereign rights and be a, be a subject to Oklahoma State Court. To which Chickasaw Nation said, we're not doing that. Oklahoma health officials have surveyed high school students for decades, looking at things like their alcohol use, nutrition, and home life. State Impact's Catherine Sweeney reports the data have shown a spike in mental health struggles. It's a pretty routine report, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Since 2003, state health officials have contacted 50 high schools every year, asking them to help collect data on the state's teenagers. This is a very broad survey. You know, we asked about alcohol, drug use, violence, sex behaviors, diet, physical activity. That's Thad Burke, a child and adolescent health epidemiologist for the State Department of Health. He heads up this survey. It's part of a national effort to identify behaviors tied to early death and bad health to give researchers and health officials an idea of what's to come. The State Department of Health released its most recent survey results last month. It paints a dire picture of mental health for Oklahoma teens. It showed shocking rates of depression and suicidality. Those have always been high. And what I mean is higher than we'd want, higher than we'd expect, and uh, they've relatively stayed the same over time. The concern was the change from 2019 to 2021. Nearly half of the teens who participated in 2021 checked yes on the traditional depression symptom of feeling so sad or hopeless for two weeks in a row that they lost interest in usual activities. 
It found that in 2021, nearly one in four respondents had contemplated suicide in the past year. Among girls, the rate was closer to one in three. Overall, nearly 10% of the children had actually made an attempt. They were high going into the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, when we asked these questions, uh, we saw increases in all of these indicators as well. It's difficult to know exactly what caused the numbers to be so high in the first place and for them to increase in the pandemic. Of course, there's an assumption that COVID-induced isolation and fear played some role in driving those figures up to the tune of about 10% year over year. It's also difficult to explain why the figures are so much worse for girls than they are for boys. Burke warns against confusing correlation and causation, but says there are some inferences. I can refer to other indicators in the survey where females have a higher prevalence of, so uh, dating violence, both physical dating violence and sexual dating violence. It's higher for females than males. The survey also contains a section on bullying. If you look only at bullying on school grounds, there isn't much of a gender difference. But being bullied electronically is almost twice as high for uh, females as it is males. Either way, seeing that more than 43% of teens are experiencing depression and that a quarter of them are contemplating suicide seems shocking. Burke says it might be easy to write those figures off. The CDC for these questions does cognitive testing. You know, from those testing, we, we know that students understand what is being asked of them. So they're answering it honestly and realistically. And even if it might appear to us as, wow, that seems high, surely they don't feel that way. The point is enough of them are reporting it often enough and consistently enough, we know there's an issue. Jeff Dismukes, the spokesman for the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, says there's another source of data. We really noticed that in in 2020 and it, it we saw kids backing up in emergency rooms and and we just hadn't had that as an issue before. Unfortunately, many of those individuals weren't able to access treatment, even if if they have insurance. There's too many of those individuals who aren't receiving the services that they need. A lack of mental health resources is a recurring issue here in Oklahoma. The Department of Justice announced last month it's investigating Oklahoma City area leaders for lack of mental health services, stating it could constitute civil rights violations. A report conducted for the state legislature found that in normal times, about 20% of Oklahoma's children and teens require mental health services at some point in their lives. And of those, half are never able to access them. For State Impact, I'm Katherine Sweeney. Being your truest self in any life situation can sometimes be challenging. Jasmine Bivartovi shares the experience of attempting to honor and protect herself in an alternative space. Oklahoma is known as one of the most conservative states. So imagine my surprise when a close friend of mine invited me to a nudist camp about an hour away from Tulsa. Having only been back in Oklahoma a few months, I hadn't fully adjusted to the conservative air, so an opportunity to be expressive through nudity was perfect. I recently moved from generally liberal Denver, Colorado. Denver is known for its mountains, springs, and other outdoor landmarks and activities. My favorite is most definitely the hot springs, and there are several where public nudity is acceptable. Even this past May, my family took a trip to a Colorado resort where we had access to six hot springs and our own personal hot tub. All outside. Amazing. I spent both nights of our trip bare butt naked in our personal hot tub as the snow drifted about the trees. It was magical. Most people in my circle know me as a comfortable naked person. Hell, most of them have seen me in all my glory. Moving back here, I knew that I wouldn't have as much access and freedom to enjoy outdoor spaces, especially not for my naked body. So when my closest high school friend invited me to the only nudist campsite in Oklahoma, I was ecstatic. We quickly planned a full day of fun and eagerly drove the hour to the campsite. First stop upon arrival was to check in at the office. The lady working the desk was topless. Yes, baby, we have arrived. I joked with her about how cool it must be to be at work with your breasts out. She giggled and agreed. 
After leaving the office, my friend immediately disrobed to enjoy the sun on her deep sienna skin. However, I just took off my top. I needed to get myself situated before busting out the booty. On our way from the parking lot to the dressing rooms, we ran into a mixed group of folks that she had seen there previously. Here's where we encountered the first realization this place wasn't made for us. The mixed group pleasantly greeted my stark naked friend with hugs and smiles. I, topless, extended a hand to the first all-too-excited white woman. She expressed disgust with my offer and proclaimed she's a hugger and attempted to hug me instead. I rejected her, still offering my hand. Reluctantly, she took it. I breathed a sigh of relief before the second pretty excited white woman tried to hug me. Rejected! Thankfully, she didn't outwardly share her disdain about the handshake, though. I explained that culturally, hugging is not the first greeting for black people, as demonstrated by the one black man of the group and I slapping hands and keeping our distance. They looked confused, and white woman number one exclaimed, Well, your friend is black, and she hugged us. I respond, You're absolutely correct, and that is her choice. I was just sharing my cultural perspective. We continued to hang with them for a while. About 20 minutes in, and it's clear they want our full attention and validation as good people. Instead, I decide to take a walk around the property. Soon as I leave, both white women bombard my friend with questions about me. Is she comfortable? Is she okay? Does she like us? Etc. Upon my return, my friend and I start having a side conversation about our dyslexia. We both discovered that this is a condition we both struggle with. Overhearing our convo, white woman number two jumps into the conversation and exclaims that we're both geniuses and she is so honored to be in our presence. Lord help me. I shoot my girl the let's move look and we excuse ourselves to the cafe to get some much needed food. In the cafe, we are greeted by white woman number three, a cook, fully clothed, who has been left in the restaurant alone to run the small cafe. Upon taking our order, instead of making our food, she feels compelled to tell us her life story, searching for connection, exclaiming that everyone that comes here is so close because it's so easy when you're naked and everyone is good people. I just want a burger. She wants connection. For about 20 minutes, my friend and I are subjected to listening to stories of her aunties teaching her to cook, etc. This was not a conversation. We were asked no questions. We didn't respond to her stories. We really just wanted food. Finally, another employee comes in, which frees us from the cook's grip of unrequested personal stories. After leaving the cafe, we sigh and state finally, we can relax and enjoy ourselves, right? Nope. White woman number two persistently seeks us out as we enter the hot tub, then the pool, then the cabanas. We cannot escape her efforts to include us in conversation and activities. After an hour, we are finally able to find our own space. I'm laying out naked and baking, enjoying the sun's rays on my body and not a care in the world. My friend has ventured off to go medicate in the designated intake zone. I'm almost to slumber when I hear a man's voice say, can I ask you a question? He takes a breath. A serious question? My eye pops open to see no one around me. I sit up and see it's a white man a few lays loungers away from me talking to my friend, my deep Sienna friend, with her yarn-like platinum blonde hair piled high on her head. She gives him a look, trying her best to not say the expletive version of buzz off. She sees that I'm watching and says with a deep sigh, sure. He proceeds to ask probably one of the most documented microaggressions black women encounter. What do you do with all that white stuff on your head in the water? Suddenly, I'm thrown into the scene of the color purple where Sophia just walked into her family's house to celebrate the holiday. She had barely shrugged off her coat before hearing the commotion and realizing that Miss Millie cannot drive herself home, takes a deep sigh 
and shrugs it back on because it's time to go. That was me on the lounger. I knew at that moment it was time to go. I sat up and started grabbing my shoes before my friend responded. At that acute point, she had to make a decision to light that white man up or gracefully bow out. Because we both wanted to come back to this place of so-called freedom, instead of giving him the business, she asks him, what does he do with the white stuff on his head in the water and walked away, leaving him confused. We quickly packed and hurried to the car as to not interact with any more of the white guilt, neediness, or privilege. We quickly packed and hurried to the car as to not interact with any more of the white guilt, neediness, or privilege. In the car, it was tough not to burst into tears. Why can't we just be black, naked, and happy? Why must it be that to be in a space, we have to validate white people's needs to know? Our one-hour ride home was dedicated to sharing our feelings about the experience and similar stories of unexpected race-based events in our lives. I tell this story because I want white people to know that it is okay to acknowledge our presence and then leave us alone. It's okay to not involve us in everything, especially if we didn't come with you or weren't invited by you. If you feel led to go the extra mile to make us feel welcomed, don't. I don't need it or want it, especially not in a place where I get to be 100% naked. There is no extra pressure from me to be included in your conversation. I don't need you to create a spectacle of my beauty or my intelligence. I don't want to be treated like a member of your family. That is a demonstration of your privilege. All of this is culturally unsafe for me and generally for black and brown people in largely white spaces. In the eyes of some, this may feel petty, but this is an example of how as a black and Latina woman, Every day, I have these same experiences. This is an example of why Black women are tired. This is an example of why we don't show up in alternative spaces. Let me be Black, naked, and happy. For Focus, Black, Oklahoma, I'm Jasmine Bivar Toby in Davis. Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Additional support is provided by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, and the Zero Families Foundation. Our theme music is by Moffitt Music. Focus Black Oklahoma's executive producers are Karesh Ali Lantana and Bracken Klar. Our associate producers are Smriti Iyengar and Jesse Ulrich. Visit us online at kosu.org, tricitycollective.com slash focusblackoklahoma, and YouTube at Tricity Collective. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at focusblackok. You can hear Focus Black Oklahoma on demand for free at kosu.org, NPR One, npr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. KOSU values input from our listeners and the communities we serve. That's why we have the KOSU Texting Club. By texting the word hello to 844-777-7719, you'll sign up to get occasional messages from reporters about stories they're working on and from KOSU staff about news happening at the station. Text the word hello to 844-777-7719 to add your voice to our newsroom today.